Hey there, everybody. This is Rod Gerardo. This is Ellen Francisco. We're research residents at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And over the past six months, we were looking at some of our most popular podcasts. And one of them was a podcast where we basically did a, like a lit review, but in this format of a case presentation with Dr. Jose Campos, a pediatric surgeon from Santiago, Chile. So we thought, let's do another one. And that's what we're doing today. Yeah, so we had a case again. This time we have an 18-month-old male presenting after a day of fussiness, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and bloody stools. Of course, he recently recovered from a mild upper respiratory virus. Yeah, he hasn't wanted to eat for the last day. When you see him, his heart rate is in the hundreds. He's normotensive. He's not febrile. Um, his abdomen is soft. He's tender throughout the abdomen, but not peritonitic. And he does have a palpable mass in the right lower quadrant. Yeah. So let's talk about first impressions. This patient should reasonably go get a workup for intussusception. I would start off with a, an abdominal x-ray. I, I work in a limited resource environment, so we don't have ultrasound at night. Actually, we don't have ultrasound after 2 p.m. many times. So it's actually difficult to, to come up with a diagnosis of of interception sometimes. Okay, so we get an x-ray, which is suspicious for intussusception. So what would we get next? Ultrasound. If you're thinking specifically interception, I think you go for an ultrasound. Would you favor getting an ultrasound in radiology or from one of the ED doctors if they decide to do it just at the bedside? I would only accept radiology. I would only accept radiology because you have to do an intervention after that. So if it's positive, you have to do an intervention, whether it is enema reduction or surgery. And um, at least I'm not trained in point of care ultrasound and neither are the emergency doctors I work with. But I think it's something interesting and worth looking at. So all the articles we're gonna talk about are linked below as usual, if you wanna read along. But the one we're talking about now is called Accuracy of Point of Care Ultrasound and Radiology Performed Ultrasound for intussusception. Uh, and this one was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2019. And basically they want to know like, how is POCUS and how good is it in diagnosing intussusception in, in children? What they found uh, in their study that it, it was actually about 90, almost 95% sensitive and 99% specific in uh, diagnosing um, intussusception. And this was a pretty large sample that they used for it. This is actually a lot better than a lot of us would predict. This study tells me that if you're at a high volume center and other people other than the radiologist have gotten good at doing ultrasounds, whether that's the surgeons, whether that's the emergency room doctors, that if they do enough of something, they have good enough results. Other than that, I don't think this paper should change anyone's practice because it's totally institution dependent. To me, this article changed a lot because sometimes we do unnecessary uh, laparotomies in the middle of the night just to just to make a diagnosis uh, because we don't have um, uh, a radiologist at, at night at our institution and we don't have any formal training in, in point of care ultrasound. I agree with what you said that anyone that does it, it, it becomes good at it, but from, from an institution that doesn't have it, I'm, I feel very keen on getting trained on, on point-of-care ultrasound after reading this. I think it would be irresponsible, I'm gonna be that bold to say, irresponsible for an institution to look at this study and say, see, we can use our ER data now. The second point you said, I, I think is a great point. And so maybe this, this does have a little more 
practice changing capability in that a, an institution like yours that is limited in ultra and radi radiology ultrasound should then present this to the hospital and say, hey, look, if we get enough volume, we may get to the point where we can make these diagnoses on our own. And so the program should be initiated to start putting more emphasis and use of point of care ultrasound. I don't think we're more than five or 10 years from this being the standardized part of residency training in the United States, whether it's in emergency medicine or general surgery or whatever. So what are we gonna do next for this patient? Here the options are fluoroscopy guided air enema, ultrasound guided saline enema, laparoscopy or laparotomy. I would do an air enema, but that's because that's what we do at our institution. We're doing a lot of laparotomies. We only have radiologists during the daytime and the radiologist is the one that does our enemas, but we many times end up doing laparoscopies or laparotomies for these children. So to help answer this question, we have another article published in the World Journal of Emergency Surgery in 2021. This one's titled Ultrasound Guided Hydrostatic Reduction versus Fluoroscopy Guided Air Reduction for Pediatric Intussusception. For this particular question, was looking at ultrasound guided hydrostatic reductions versus fluoro-guided air reductions. Um, so this was a prospective study from a few years ago, 2017 to 2018 in <laughs> China. The results they found that ultrasound guided hydrostatic reduction was had a higher success rate, but you can see, as Jose pointed out, that it's like a 2% difference, so 95.8% success rate versus 93.1% success rate of the air enema. After reading this, uh... Well, it's an interesting paper, it's well done, but uh, I, I don't think anyone should change from air if they're doing air enema. So again, I'm gonna disagree with Jose, which is why it's good we have multiple opinions here. I agree that this study <clears throat> should not change your management out of a hope of having improved outcomes. However, it validates an alternative method of reducing the intussusception that shows at least equivalent results if you know how to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if it's basically equivalent in results and outcomes, then yeah, I agree why switch, but I'm not sure. That's a good question about the radiation. They do point that out. All of this culminating together, the one common question that needs to be asked is, could we change paradigm where we do a lot of this strictly in the emergency department? They learn how to do the ultrasound. They may be able to learn how to do the reduction as well. All right, Ellen, we got to keep moving here. We asked the radiologist to do the air enema, um, iliocolic conception, but they tell us that on the x-ray, the bowel gas pattern appears obstructive. You know, therefore, they predict the reduction will be unsuccessful. I have had radiologists say to me, by the look of the ultrasound, they think that the chance of reduction is low and they would be concerned about perforation. My answer is, go for it. I share the same opinion. I would just go for it. Regarding the the obstructive view, I think it depends on how many hours uh, the patient has presented to the emergency. So this article is titled Radiographic Findings, Predictive of Irreducibility and Surgical Resection in Iliocolic Intussusception, and it was published in Pediatric Radiology in 2020. They looked at the radiographs of patients with intussusception and tried to look for findings that, would, that were more associated with um, failed air enema reduction. Um, and then the ones that they found, if they had a obstructive gas pattern as opposed to a normal bowel gas pattern on the radiographs, and uh, they had a decreased success of the air enema and it increased complicated surgical reductions, meaning they had to resect bowel. 
but I'm still not convinced that this single cohort retrospective study is enough for me to, to trust this idea. But actually you're making a really good point, Todd. If it's not related to, to bowel resection, it's still worth trying. Just to summarize that, I did not know that, and it makes total sense, that if you see a bowel obstruction, it's been there long enough that the chances are low. And that what to do with that, I don't know, but it is interesting. All right, so we had a second article discussing this topic. It's called Ilia Colic Intussusception, Predicting the Probability of Success of Ultrasound-Guided Saline Enema from Clinical and Sonographic Data. This one was published in the Journal of Pediatric Surgery in 2018. Yeah, and this one created a model to try to predict who would fail ultrasound-guided saline enema. Yeah, this, this one's interesting because um, it, it creates a prediction rule. And actually, they, they tried this prediction rule in, in real patients, and they, they were able to identify 80% of failure. So before doing the enema, you can actually find out if it's going to be successful or not. So Also looked at, we don't all details, but free fluid as being something to look into and, and if it's beyond the splenic angle um, and whether if you have an altered Doppler signal, those are also those are also other things to look at. The next question, if we decide they are going to do an air enema to reduce it, what do we think we should give for analgesia or sedation? Mm -hmm. And we give them analgesia based on opioids. That's it. We don't do any sedations or sedation or anesthesia for them. So I was actually very interested in, in, in finding out whether the reduction rate is less with sedation or anesthesia. So we have two papers. Uh, the first one is called Success Rate of Pneumatic Reduction of Intussusception with and Without Sedation. And it was published in Pediatric Anesthesia in 2017. The success rate is uh, slightly better for sedation. Bowel perforations three on the sedation group, none in the non-sedation group, but that's not statistically significant. But again, the reference rate is a bit higher, 5.1 with the sedation group and 1.3 with the non-sedation group. Non-significantly non different, but again, it gives you a, a bit of a red flag about that. Yeah, I don't know if we have a say in that necessarily, but um, but I agree with what Jose is saying. Is like, like I, I feel like if it makes the patient more comfortable and the family more comfortable for the procedure, these numbers aren't like dramatically different to me. I know that they found non they found significant difference in the success rate, but it, it's like seven percent difference. It's not enough to convince me. I feel like why not just make this kid comfortable when you're going to do it. But but that would lead us then to the next article. I mean, if you are going to use sedation, then which sedation would you use? The next study, which is in pediatric anesthesia, uh, titled Effects of S-Ketamine Sedation Compared to Morphine Analgesia on Hydrostatic Reduction of Intussusception, a case cohort comparison study. And what they ended up finding was non-significant differences between ketamine and morphine. So the success rate for ketamine was 90, the success rate for morphine was 70%, and then the recurrence rates were 10 and 15 respectively. So all non-significant. And then Todd, there were no bowel perfs in this one. If we feel that it's equally safe, and you said the first study was not statistically significant, if these studies show that sedation is not any more dangerous for perforation than non-sedation, then I agree with you in sedating them. For me, it's difficult to understand why sedation, analgesia, nothing, or anesthesia will, would change your, your risk profile. I agree with Rod. I would love to give sedation for these children. But having a look at this 
article, the numbers are not significant. I find this interesting and I, I want to move forward to sedation from nothing or just analgesia. But I would like to see a, a bit of a larger study ensuring myself and, and the families that sedation is, is as safe as the other one. So we do the aerodema in this case, it's successful. The question now is what do we do with them? Do we send them home from the ED, admit them overnight, uh, or admit them until they can eat a full diet or, or uh, admit them for 48 hours? So historically, watch them overnight. I know there's recent data to support sending them home. In fact, I think our hospitals have established a new protocol for that. My answer is I think the data is strong enough that it's okay to send these patients home if they meet criteria. It's going to be a culture shift. I'm open to it. I would keep them overnight. We have a study again. Um, so this one's about uh, outpatient management of interception. This one's a systematic review of meta-analysis from JPS uh, in 2019. And so these authors looked at 10 studies in, of pediatric patients undergoing air enemas and looked for the outpatient management and if it was um, safe for these patients. They found no significant difference in the rate of returns in emergency department, recurrence or need for operation or mortality um, in patients who were inpatient versus those who were managed on an outpatient, meaning they were sent home from the, from the ED. Now, I will say, interestingly, during COVID, as hospital beds are becoming a scarcity, staff is a scarcity, we're gonna be forced to try things we didn't do before, and this is gonna be one of those. This is a pure example of looking at the possibility of not just admitting because we used to, and if we have a study that shows that it's safe, that should be compelling enough for us to consider sending these patients home. I would also be willing to change my practice after looking at these results. And, and I agree with the comment you made. I think we've all seen the benefits of the ERAS protocols. And it's really nice to see these numbers. I think on our appendicitis podcast that we did in this fashion, just talk about COVID and getting patients out of the hospital or keeping patients from getting admitted and stuff like that. It's unfortunate we're having the same conversation six months later, but you know, it's true, it's happening again. And here we are talking about how to keep patients out. Let's say that this child goes home. They go home and what do you think the recurrence rate is for these patients with intussusception who get reduced successfully? I was always told, and I've been telling patients for years, 15 to 20%. And every time I say it, I feel like I'm kind of lying because I know I've been told that number. Anecdotally, it certainly does not seem to me to be 15 to 20%. I, I share that same feeling. I feel like a liar when I'm saying the number I have in my mind, but actually my number is 10%. That's the number I tell residents. That's the number I tell families, 10%. Okay, so this study, Incidents of Recurrent Intussusception in Young Children, Nationwide Readmissions Analysis from Journal of Pediatric Surgery in 2020. This study is done in a... a on a database, it's a retrospective search of 8,289 patients. It uh, comes out from University of Miami Middle School of Medicine. And the readmission and recurrence rate is 3.7%. The thing about this article is that our group on this Zoom call was surprised, maybe you are too, that the readmission and recurrence rate was so low at 3.7. But to contrast that, we have another study. This one's called the Management of Intussusception in the Pediatric Emergency Department, Risk Factors for Recurrence. This is from Pediatric Emergency Care in 2020, and looked at possible risk factors for recurrence after an air enema, and they had a sample size of 200 cases. 
and they found a 13.5% recurrence rate with a 7.3% recurrence rate within 48 hours. And they looked at specific factors to predict who might recur. They found that fever and being a female was were two factors associated with early, early recurrence. Both of these articles, whether you go with the smaller study or the larger study out of Miami, both of them have a smaller or a, what do you call, a, a much less recurrence rate than what um, you and Todd were talking about. I think we're, we have to be okay with sending patients home if we can become more tolerant of recurrence and really understand, do they really need to stay in the hospital just because there's a chance of recurrence? That's the question that we need to ask. And here also the number given is 48 hours. I don't know anyone that's gonna keep an intussusception for 48 hours. So really it's how much happens in 12 hours because when you admit them, you send them home the next morning. I think for me, it depends on the risk of sending them home, not just the recurrence. And for me, that wouldn't stop me from sending them home. Increasing our recurrence or failure tolerance it benefits the vast majority of children with lower chances of getting a complication. Okay, so in summary, we have this patient with intussusception. We talked about first, how to diagnose intussusception, uh, whether or not, you know, some in some centers are using a point of care ultrasound. And some are using radiology ultrasound guided. And that one, we kind of figured it's really up to you and your institution. Not everyone's gonna be really good at point of care ultrasound. So maybe play that one by ear. Right, and then the next thing is if, if we do see ileocolic interception, what do you do next? How do you intervene? And we had some differences in where Jose and Todd were from, meaning that Jose's in the middle of the night oftentimes himself doing laparotomies for this, whereas here frequently, you know, we do air or saline enemas. Yeah, which I think brings to light, not just how international our Zoom call was, but how international our audience, I think, is. And, you know, I think they'll, that this might vary depending on where you practice as well. It seems like the take-home point here was if there is a way that we could reduce the amount of unnecessary surgery that a child is subjected to, then we should at least try to move in that direction. So then we talked about possible criteria for irreducibility. For, with a, either an air enema or a saline enema. We talked about two different articles here. If you can, take a moment and read these so you can kind of get an idea of what to keep an eye out for when you have these patients with ileocolic intussusception. If you have some new signs, you won't necessarily not try the air enema, but you'll kind of have in the back of your mind, I may need to go to the OR with this patient. So then with radiology for you know an air enema or a saline enema, and the next question is, or the question was, what should we give the patient for sedation or analgesia? You read a couple of articles about different things, either propofol or ketamine or just some morphine. There may be differing opinions out there. But it seems like our group was thinking, whatever your opinion is, just make sure that the child is comfortable for the procedure. So then we get, say our resection was successful, and then we're talking about disposition for the patient. Can we send them home? An article looking at outpatient management meeting, probably safe for these patients who are successfully reduced to be sent home. It seems like it is safe in this day and age to send a child home after successfully reducing their intussusception if you are comfortable with that recurrence rate. Yeah, that's what I was last time we talked about was the recurrence rate and maybe some factors to predict recurrence. A quick review of recent literature on how to manage intussusception from when they come into the door to 
when they're going home or coming back from home. If you like this episode and you want to hear more like this, let us know in the comments. If anyone out there has a topic they might want to see a lit review on, leave a comment. Let us know. Follow us on social media, subscribe to our YouTube channel, download the Stay Current Pediatric Surgery app. But until then, I'm Rod. And I'm Ellen. And remember, knowledge should be should free. Be free.